We're going to read a section of a, one of, of a letter, most likely written by one of Jesus' best friends, closest friends who walked with him while he was on earth, who listened to him teach, who watched what he did, who was there when he died, and who saw him after he had risen again from death. And this man's job was to try to help those of us who would come later understand who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We've been trying to unpack one of his letters. It's a letter known as 1 John. And we're going to be in chapter 3 of that letter with a few verses this morning. If you want to go ahead and flip over there, I'm going to get us set up. So, one of the main themes of this letter, which is a letter that's, that's meant to help readers understand what it is to be a genuine Christian and separate the counterfeit versions of Christianity that even then were being batted around from the true thing from the real article, genuine article. That's what the letter's for. One of the main themes of this letter that's about helping us recognize real Christianity is love. Of course, love for God, of God for people that don't deserve it, but also love from us for one another. A love that's, that's a kind of funnel of God's love to each other's lives. Last week we talked about uh, an image I borrowed from another pastor of, of our lives as a kind of uh, blank canvas on which we're, we're painting our love for God. So in the local church, your life, to me, is a, is a canvas on which I get to draw, I get to paint. My love for God shows up, gets expressed in your life. You are my opportunity to practice the love that I have for God. We talked about love one another as the common theme in John that, that we got into last week, but that's going to be coming back up again in the next four or five weeks together as it keeps coming up over and over in, in this letter. And to be honest, the command to love one another is, is not really a distinctively Christian command. That's something that a lot of people are into and would say, would affirm. The command to love one another, actually, it looks great on a t-shirt. We actually have a t-shirt, a Trinity t-shirt that says, love one another. Probably today the favorite of the variety of Trinity t-shirts that have come out over the years. And, and with good reason. I mean, it's a biblical theme that really matters. And sometimes, for a stretch anyway, we can actually start to think of ourselves as loving people. Maybe because we have tender feelings when we see images of, of faraway refugees in camps or on boats and the crisis that they're facing because that moves us. Maybe because sometimes when we're asked for money on the street, we, we offer money or take someone and buy them a meal. Maybe that's part of our normal practice. But one of the things we talked about last week is that individual humans are a lot harder to love than humanitarian causes. Individual humans aren't always lovable. This was a quote from C.S. Lewis that I read last week. I've got, I got to read it to you again just because it's so good. Lewis says, It's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse, he says, for loving nobody in particular. See, individual people can wound you. They can talk back to you. They can actually reject the loving care you're trying to give them at great cost to yourself. They can keep asking for help over and over and over when you're tired of giving it. 
So if you want to follow Jesus' example, if you want to spend your life for the other people around you, as Jesus did, if you want to see their needs, even when those needs are relentless, and open your hearts to them, how can you keep on doing that when it feels like death? I think that's the question John's answering in the text that we, that we come to this morning. Now, I want to go ahead and tell you that it isn't obvious on the surface of the text I'm about to read for you that that's what he's saying. In fact, what we're going to look at, the few verses we're going to look at this morning are one of the more difficult sections in John's letter to unravel. Uh, they, the, 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 each individual verse or phrase as you come to it, I think it seems pretty clear and understandable on its own. But when you start stringing them together and trying to understand why he says what he says in this order and how this statement connects to that statement, it gets difficult. And really well-meaning, well-trained, even I'm going to say experts on the New Testament disagree with each other about how these connections work. But we're all trying to do the same thing as we come to these verses. Uh, we're, we're trying to fit what John says here in these verses in light of what he said before, if we can, and in light of what he says after, if we can. We're going to try to understand what he said, in other words, in context. And I'm going to ask you to just to, 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 to hang with me through some of these details while I try to to, to unravel this text for you and show you how I'm understanding it. Because if we, if we track through the challenge that, that we're faced with this morning, if we can track together through that challenge, I think what you're going to find is tremendous encouragement in this passage for how to love other people when love isn't easy. For how to love other people when you're, when you're beyond the realm of the t-shirt or the hashtag and you're into the lay your life down on a cross to be nailed there by them, realm of love. The kind of love that Jesus showed for us and that his followers, those who were born of God, always demonstrate in their own lives. I want to begin by reading this passage together, and then we're going to walk through it together this morning in just a couple of steps. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. I'm going to start in verse 19 of chapter 3, and then I am going to read all the way through the end of this chapter, verse 24. This is the word of the Lord. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to walk through this text together in two steps. Two resources John points us to. Two, two suggestions he gives to us for approaching the command to love one another when love for others isn't easy. Here's the first step. When you don't want to love others... The step he gives us is to persuade your heart with the gospel. That's language I'm going to take from this text. 
I'll explain it here in a minute. But the main point is, when you, when you find yourself not wanting to love others, the opportunity is clear. You know what it would mean to take up the call to love, but you, but you shrink back from it. When that's where you are, this text reminds us to persuade our hearts with the gospel. Now, I want to show you where I'm getting this. The first two verses that I read, verse 19 and verse 20. So, so did you notice John begins this section with a by this. It's a transition phrase. It's him pointing us back to something he's just talked about. By this thing that I just talked about. But it also getting us ready to go, to go into the next verses. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an in-between phrase that helps connect some dots. He's about to say something that you need to hear because of what he's just said. And what he's just said is that we should love others not just with our words, not just from a distance, not just when it feels good to do it, but when there's a real need, up close, personal, and costly. And it's that this kind of of practical love, by this kind of practical love, he's saying, we know that we're of the truth. We know that we're Christians who know Jesus and his love in our own lives. But how do we connect what comes next with what comes before? The trouble starts in verse uh, 19 where, where my translation says we reassure our heart before him. And it continues in verse 20 with, with a reference to our hearts condemning us and God being greater than our heart. What do these phrases mean? How do they connect to what John has just said in calling us to see brothers and sisters in need and then lay down our lives for them as Jesus did? That's the the burden of these two verses for us. A couple of problems here. I just want to make sure you understand where we're coming from. Most people take take, take this as a reference to our consciences being pricked, feeling guilty or ashamed. Our conscience is being insecure and fearful about where we stand with God. Maybe because we're not loving well enough. Takes basically the word heart as an equivalent or a synonym for conscience. And then thinks of our heart condemning us as us struggling with a kind of shame and self-loathing or beating ourselves up for, for all sorts of failures. And the idea that God is greater than our hearts then is, is a, re- a reminder that either he loves us anyway or he knows better than we do. Or that he's going to be harsher in his judgment than we are. He's even greater than our hearts. So if our hearts are condemning us, we better watch out because he knows everything and, and he'll condemn us too. Different people go different ways with that. But that's the idea that, that reassuring our hearts is, is about building ourselves up when we're feeling shame or condemned. But the problem with that is it's not, not clear at all how it would connect to this command to love one another. And that command comes before these verses, comes in verse 17 and verse 18. It comes in verse 23, after the verses that I'm in now. So it seems like John's got loving one another on the brain. And most anyone who takes reassuring our hearts when they condemn us as a kind of build yourself up, find your way to assurance, sees it as John just kind of on a digression. He sort of lost his train of thought for a second. He moves over here to to how we can find assurance when we're worried about where we stand, and then he comes right back to his main train of thought of, of loving one another. But if we can avoid seeing him as, as sort of chasing a rabbit in these verses, we want to. We want to respect him as a thinker to be actually working on something consistently here. The other reason we ought to do that for John is that, is that actually taking, taking the words as they're translated in my version uh, as, as reassure or seeing heart as a kind of synonym for conscience, actually uses the words that are there 
in the original language in a very different way than they're normally used. So I didn't know this until I was doing some reading on this this week, but the word that, that my translation go, says, uh, uses reassure to translate, it's used a bunch of times in the New Testament, like 50 plus times it's used in the New Testament. But, but in almost every single time, it's used for persuade or convince, not to reassure. It's never used for reassurance, kind of comfort. It's used to, to persuade or to convince. Think like a lawyer would do. And the word heart, it's never used as a synonym for conscience, for, for the part of you that feels guilty or ashamed. The word heart is used in the, in the Bible uh, as, as a, a reference to your kind of command center in your life, the core of who you are from which you interact with the world. And the main thing associated with your heart in the scriptures is your desires, your want to. Your heart is the place from which you want to go and do this and not that in the world. It's the seat of desire. So if we take reassured in its normal use of persuade or convince, and we think about the heart as our desires, not as, a, as a, our conscience, then I think, following some other, some other writers here, I, I think there's a way to, to make these verses fit perfectly in John's main flow of thought where John is trying to help us understand what it'll take for us to love one another when we don't want to. Let me show you how that works. John has just said we should love each other in practical ways that cost us something. That's verse 17 and 18. He said we shouldn't love just with our words or just in, in, in our talk. We should love in deed and in truth. We should actually put our money where our mouth is when we love one another. We've been told that that's how we know we're with Jesus, but... But honestly, I mean, all of us are going to have to admit this. Sometimes uh, we are not going to want to love people that way. Sometimes our hearts are going to shrink back. Our desires, think heart equals desire. Our desires are going to shrink back from an opportunity, a need that's really clear to us, where what love would look like is not confusing. But, but we just don't want to do it for whatever reason. And in that moment, our hearts, our desires are condemning us as we approach that opportunity to love and, and, and move towards it. Our hearts are saying, no, not again, not this time, not at that cost. Our hearts condemn us when we're faced with this opportunity to obey. So, so John's got finances on the brain. He said, when, when you have the world's goods and you see a brother in need, well, you help him. You meet his need. If you'd close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in you? Verse 17 says. So sometimes giving our goods to those who need help, as as verse 17 is talking about, it hurts. Our hearts see the opportunity. We know we have resources to meet with that need, but our hearts shrink back. Maybe we feel like I I really need the money I have. I don't have that much to spare. Or, Or the money that I have is already spoken for. I have plans for it. Or maybe we think, I don't know what my own family is going to need next year. And if I give my resources now to this person's need, that's very current, very present, then, then I might end up needing some help from somebody else next year. Why not just, just save my own so that I'll be ready in case something happens next year? Or, or maybe, maybe you think that the person only needs resources because they've made foolish choices. The foolish choices are their problem. And, and me giving them money is not going to make them any better equipped to, to make good choices in the future. So it's really just not going to help. 
There's lots of ways our hearts, in other words, can, can look at an opportunity to give our money for the needs that someone else has and shrink back and condemn it and say, no, uh-uh, not this time. And whenever our hearts condemn us, we need to remember that God is greater than our hearts. Verse 20. Remember, God is greater than our heart. In other words, he doesn't shrink back like we do. He doesn't self-protect. He doesn't hedge his way out of the opportunity. He doesn't make excuses. He enters in. He loves. He pours out. That's who he is. That's what he does. When we don't want to love others like this, basically what John is telling us is to talk back to ourselves to persuade our hearts. That's what it means to reassure your hearts, to persuade yourself, to go for it anyway, because because remember God. Remember his love for you. Remember what he's like. That's what it means to persuade our hearts before him, to bring him into it, to know that we interact with this need in his presence, that he knows everything, he's watching. And we know what he's like, we know what he loves. And our call is to reflect him. So when our hearts say no, we, we, we talk to, one, to ourselves about God. It's a, com, it's a call, in other words, to, to look to him instead of to look deeper into ourselves. To not let our instincts be our guide. Let me give you another example of how this might look. So not love, in this case, by giving away resources. Talked about that. That's one way that our hearts might shrink back. But how about love in relationship to somebody who has emotional or relational needs that that you feel dwarfed by, or that have been hard for you to cope with or, or grapple with as you've uh, carried them with this person? This is the crucial work of Christian community. And Christian community is set up so that we bear burdens together. But that is not easy. That's another thing that sounds a lot better on a website than it, does, than it plays out in actual friendships. So, so maybe, maybe you're in one of these friendships, when, in, in a relationship of love, and you understand what the need is, and, you're, and you, you're shrinking back from needing it. Sometimes, maybe you're spinning in your own heart nonstop on why it makes sense that it would be hard to love this person. You, maybe, maybe you're going over and over again the history of the hurt and the poor treatment and all the times that you've tried to address something and seen it go nowhere. How many hurtful things were said without notice or without apology or maybe every time you open up your heart to that need and you pour out what you have, you get blamed for not giving enough. I don't know what it is, but, but chances are you've got this, this, this sort of gallery of images in your mind that you can go back to at a moment's notice and replay. We were watching this uh, futuristic sci-fi show a while back that was imagining this dystopian world in which everybody has a chip implanted in their neck, I guess close to their brain, where everything that happens to them is getting recorded on a video, which is actually not that far from what you know, social media sites could provide you now with all the timelines and the images on Snapchat or, or, or Instagram. It's tracking everything for you. Just imagine if it was comprehensive record, right? And it plays on a screen that's in their eye, kind of like a contact lens. And they've got a little remote and they can just zip through their timeline and boop, hit that day and they can hear that thing said to them or watch that thing done to them anytime they want uh, for as long as they choose to keep it on their hard drive. 
it actually is a, it's an interesting way of imagining what a lot of us do with the wrongs that we've suffered. That, that we've got them stored permanently, ready for recall. And a lot of times when it's hard, like, our main focus is looking in. Looking in ourselves at what we've experienced, at what we've thought about it, at what it's done to us, and just spinning on that. And, and what John is trying to tell us what he's trying to give us is an alternative. To stop just thinking, thinking, thinking about the ways that we've been wronged and to start talking back to ourselves. To start persuading our hearts, working our hearts with truth about God. To actually look out of ourselves and our own experience to God and who we know him to be. To bring him into the situation as a resource that's beyond anything we could provide on our own. To argue with ourselves, in other words, and to do it with counter images. We've got all these images logged in our brain, ready to pull up at a moment's notice. He's saying, clear out some hard drive space and replace what's there with images of God and his love. For example, through things that can remind you that God is greater than our hearts. He does not shy away. Psalm 103. We read it in worship last week. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You know what that means? God is greater than our hearts. That's what that means. So look to him. Or Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Never. His mercies, unlike mine, they never come to an end. His mercies are new every morning, ready to go. Great is his faithfulness. You know what that means? God is greater than our hearts. Or Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression. He doesn't retain his anger forever. Not like me. Because he delights in steadfast love. That's what he's like. He will have compassion on us. He'll tread our sins underfoot. He'll cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And you know why? Because God is greater than our heart. Or Hebrews 12, 2. Look to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. God in Christ, friends, is greater than our heart. He knew what the cross would cost him. He didn't shrink back. Or, just to borrow from our own text, 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. God is greater than our heart. His love is our guide. And when our hearts shrink back from love as we know we should love. What do we do? We persuade our hearts. We tell our hearts, again, the truth of the gospel. And the gospel, friends, is this. If you're visiting with us and you're, you're not, not sure what we mean by this word gospel that we use a lot in church, I want to just tell you what it is as clearly as I can. The Bible tells us that we didn't just happen. We're not just here by accident. Each one of us was made by a personal God who made us in love. 
made us as a reflection of his own beauty and character and power. That everything good in us is meant to only reflect the good that is in him. And that means that everything about us, every resource we possess, every breath that we breathe is given to us to honor him. That this God called us to live in a way that reflects our dependence on him. But that each one of us, every day that we've ever lived, has chosen to live as if we were the reason that we exist. To live as if our needs trump all else. As if our interests, as we define them, are the guiding interests for our lives in this world. Every one of us has done that. In doing that, we've treated God as if he just doesn't matter. Really, what we've done is treated him as if he doesn't exist. We have acted as if the very God who gives us everything we have is a non-factor. And for this, friends, all of us deserve to lose everything we have to death. But the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that the same God who made us, the same God whose love we have rejected every day we've ever lived, This God, rather than shrinking back from us and what it would cost to make us pure and holy, not only continued loving us, but came even closer, taking on a body just like ours, living the life we were meant to live, dying a death that he did not deserve to die so that we wouldn't have to die the deaths that we deserve, that he lives again now. Even though he was really dead, his body, as real as mine, exists now, alive again. Because he has completely paid the price for every sin of every person who has ever lived who will ever trust in him. It's done. And that means that if you will trust in him rather than in yourself to find meaning and purpose and hope and forgiveness in your life, he will actually forgive you. And he'll forgive you tomorrow. And he'll forgive you the next day. And he will go on forgiving you because his love is not like ours. It's steadfast. And friends, when your hearts condemn you, when your hearts say, no, I can't love again, not this time. It's costing me too much. John is reminding us to work ourselves, to persuade our hearts, to talk back to our hearts with the reminder that God is greater, that his love is not like ours, that we know love by this. He laid down his life for us. And that's why we don't shrink back in loving one another. That's the first thing that John puts in front of us, I believe, as a resource for us when we don't want to love one another because it's too hard. There's another scenario that I think comes out of these next verses, beginning in verse uh, 21. So verses 19 and 20, imagine us not wanting to love each other. I think verses 21 and 22 and 23 talk about when we, when we do want to love one another, when our heart doesn't condemn us, it doesn't shrink back. We really do want to help, but we don't know how. Or it feels impossible. Or we're not sure what to do next. Or we don't know how to carry on. John says in verse 21, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And the way we've just taken verses 19 and 20, I think it flows straight into this, nice and smooth. What he's saying is, if our heart doesn't shrink back, faced with a chance to love and really wants to go for it, that's, that's wonderful. That's actually a great reason to believe that, that God is in you, working to change you. It's a good reason to have confidence before God, in other words. It's a sign that he's doing a miracle. Because if you see a, a costly opportunity to love and you don't shrink back from it, that's not just because your personality type goes for things like that. 
It's because God is doing something to transform you. It's because something fundamentally unnatural, supernatural is going on in your life. It's not about you. It's about his power. That's great. That's a good reason to be confident. He's telling you, claim it and and celebrate it. But when you face this opportunity to love, this opportunity you really want to take up, your heart is not condemning you. You want to go in. You may face another reason to shrink back. Maybe that problem seems too big for you, too complicated or too insurmountable. Maybe the person you're trying to care for seems unwilling to take it. They don't want the love you're trying to give them. That's going to happen. So what you're facing is an opportunity to love that you really want to claim and and you just don't know how to. I think that's the scenario John has in mind here. And his solution is just so simple, so straightforward, so claimable for you today. You could do it right now. His solution, when you want to love somebody else, but you don't know how, is to pray. That's the simple solution to these verses. Just pray about it. Now, let me show you where I'm coming from here. Verse 22 follows this statement of confidence in verse 21. If our heart doesn't condemn us, that's a good thing. We have confidence before God. Praise Him. He's doing a miracle in you. Something unnatural is happening. Then he goes straight into verse 22 and says... Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. It's a promise that whatever we ask, we get. And why do we know that he'll give us what we ask for? We know because we keep his commandments. We know because we do what pleases him. So, I mean, just to call the elephant in the room out, it's easy to read that quickly. If you were just taking this verse all by itself... You didn't have a context to to use to understand it. You can take this verse really quickly and miss the point, actually get a dangerous point out of it, as if God was some sort of indulgent parent who just does whatever his kids ask him to do, or even more dangerous. It could look like like God gives us whatever we want just because we've done what he's told us to. So that turns God into the sort of pleading parent who's trying to potty train his kids. Please, just remember to sit on the Lightning McQueen potty. Doesn't it look fun? Just sit right there. Just please do it. And you'll get whatever you want. Whatever treat. You get to pick the treat. Whatever you wish, it shall be done for you. Just please do this thing I'm asking you to do. It almost turns God into that kind of parent, just sort of pleading and bargaining with his kids. Offering them anything, blank check, if they'll just do what he wants them to do. That doesn't fit the picture of God that comes out of the Bible. It also doesn't fit this context at all. Remember the context. We're not just talking about any sort of thing that we might ask for. That whatever we ask comes in the middle of a passage that's about loving one another, especially when it costs you your life. So when... When you're faced with an opportunity to love and you know it's going to hurt and you're not sure how to measure out the distance between where you are now and where you want to be, in that context, which is what comes before this verse and what comes after it, John is assuring you, you don't face that challenge by yourself. If that's what you want, You want to love somebody even though it's going to cost you your life? You ask me for whatever you need and I'll give it to you. The context here, in other words, it's not self-indulgence. It's not like this blank check where God's some sort of genie in a bottle or whatever metaphor you want to use. It's not self-indulgence. The context for this promise 
is self-sacrifice, self-denial, an opportunity to love that doesn't close its heart, but enters in even at great cost. The context is spending our lives on each other and our needs, not in theory, but in practice. And this we know that we're called to do because we know him. John said that early in chapter 3. This is what it looks like to be born of him because this is what he's like. That's the context. The assumption is that we are going for what he's called us to. And when that's the case, when we're going for what he's called us to, we know that he's with us. We know we don't go it alone. We have his help because we're doing his work. And why wouldn't he give us everything we need when we're doing what he's told us to do? That's, I think that's how verses 23 or 22 and 23 go together. We're already doing his commands. We're seeking what he's called us to seek. We're aiming at what pleases him. That's verse, 20, or verse 22. So when we're just joining him in his work of love in the world, of course he's going to equip us. I think, I think this main point is reinforced in what he says in verse 23. Remember, it, the, the commands that we're keeping, they're not arbitrary ones. They're not mysterious ones. The, this is his command. Believe Jesus' name and love one another. There it is. Verse 23. The command that we're keeping, the reason that he's going to give us anything we need, is that we're just believing in his name and we're loving one another. Believing his name doesn't, doesn't refer to the name Jesus, like the actual name Jesus, but to his reputation, his rule, his reign in the world, his kingdom agenda. When we're believing in that, when we're putting our whole life on it, trusting it like you trust the chair you're sitting in right now, I'm just going to collapse onto his agenda and just give my life over to it. When I believe in his name and all that it stands for, loving one another is going to be how that shows up in my life. To be on his mission is to, is to love one another. So when I'm, when I'm doing that, verse 23, when these commands are commands that I'm obeying, believing in him and loving others, when I'm showing trust and allegiance to him, when I show, verse 24, that I'm abiding in him, bringing him into every situation, then I have the promise that he's with me. Now I'll return to this outlandish claim that whatever we ask, we receive. Why do we know this? Why is it that when we're believing in him and loving one another, we know we can ask him whatever we need and get it? Not because he's a mindless, indulgent parent. Not because he's some sort of pagan God who's just waiting on you to crack the right code and get what you need. Not, not because he's easily manipulated or self-centered in how he relates with us. We know that he'll give us what we need because when we're pursuing what pleases him, when we're fusing our agenda for our lives with his agenda, when we are actively embracing wherever we can what he's told us he wants our lives to be about, then of course he's going to give us what we ask for because what we'll be asking for, we already know, pleases him. How easy it is to forget for me anyway. It's so easy for me to forget that I approach difficult situations and relationships not on my own. Not with no possibility of change. But with the promise of God's help. With the prospect of God's power working in me to do what I can't even imagine. 
How quick I am to forget that this God who's called me to love others even when it hurts me is my Father. He loves me. He won't ever ask me to do anything that that He's not going to equip me to do. He's not like that. He doesn't toy with me. He's not that kind of Father. He's not a father who gives unreasonable demands to his children, always disappointed, always expecting them to fail, just waiting to pounce. That's not what he's like. And he doesn't play games with me. He doesn't amuse himself with my pathetic attempts at obedience. He's a father who loves me. He wants to help me. He is pleased when I love what he loves. That just makes him happy. And of course he's going to teach me how to do what he's called me to do. And I need no further evidence of that than the fact that he put Jesus into this world, into a body like mine, to die. He's got skin in the game, literally. That's who he is to me. That's the measure of his commitment to the agenda I'm wanting to fuse with my, my own life into. That's who I'm dealing with. Sometimes, in, uh, in my, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll have an opportunity to love somebody and and, and for me, and just especially serving our church in the way I do as an elder here, sometimes that involves multiple conversations that we get to have. Where I'm helping folks with, with things that they're working through. And, um, I'm, and a lot of times, by God's grace, that's something I really enjoy and love it. Um, and don't shrink back from it. My heart doesn't condemn me in many cases. But I have noticed about myself, I'm not a verbal processor. I don't tend to just talk out what I'm thinking. I tend to write it out. Sometimes I'll journal about it. Sometimes I'll keep like a note on a particular case, or case is probably the wrong word to use it, but on a particular uh, uh, opportunity that I've got to help someone through whatever they're facing in their lives. Sometimes, especially when it's intense and, and complicated, and, and I don't know which way forward, especially because of how much we love one another. I love the person that I'm talking to and, and wanting to help. I've noticed that I can sometimes just churn out more and more and more material in these notes just trying to get trying to bring some control to the situation by my ability to write about it it doesn't work at all it's like a terrible strategy for how to move someone forward it helps me to get my mind in in order and to think about what i need to say next what's next what's helpful but i've been convicted lately um especially in light of this passage there's, maybe it's helpful to sort of process my own thinking about what's best next. But there's a big difference between me trying to bring some control to the situation through the power of my thinking about it and me bringing my father into the situation knowing he ultimately is the one who loves and cares for the person, that he's their father too, that he loves them even more than I do. And he's just not limited in the way that I am. What I've been convicted of is that like these these journal entries that I'm doing where I'm just trying to, to help figure out the best way forward can sometimes be a replacement for actually praying to God about whatever's going on in this situation. Uh, there was a book that we read years ago in a, in a summer book study here at Trinity called The Praying Life or A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And uh, this week I uh, went back to that book because he has some chapters on these outlandish promises about whatever you want you'll get it. Um, and I remembered one of his main practical strategies at the end of that book is prayer cards. It's very 20th century, 
But he recommends index cards where you write down somebody's name, somebody that you're burdened for, you're, you're loving, what the need is that you'd love to enter in on. Maybe some scripture passages that apply to it, that, that you can pray for that person. And then just to track what you've been praying for them and where you've been seeing God answer prayers. And I was convicted going back and realizing, oh, that, that's what these notes that I take could be. Rather than me trying to master the situation through the clarity of my thinking, they could be prayer cards. They could be me identifying the ways in which I would love to love this person but can't. And I can just turn them straight into requests. You could do that too. So I wonder, where are the opportunities to love in your life right now that you really want to take up? You believe it would honor God for you to enter in but you have no idea what's next. You feel completely dwarfed by the challenge that you're, that you're facing. What is that for you? You consider maybe, maybe journal a little bit about it. Maybe try to line out specific things you would like to see that you think would honor God and help this person. And then turn that bullet list into prayer. Because what, what this passage is promising us is that when we are doing the work of love as ambassadors for the king who loves us so well, we can ask whatever we wish and it'll be done for us. We work not on our own, not limited in the way that our power is limited, but with the promise of his help. How can you claim that this week? Father, I pray that you would help us to be good stewards of the resource you are in our lives. I pray that you would protect us from our tendency to limit our horizons by our own abilities. But to dream and to think and to plan and to hope, expecting you to do miracles in the opportunities you put in front of us to love one another. We want our culture and our church to be one that brings you glory. We trust that the special kind of glory you're getting from local churches is the glory of people loving each other when it shouldn't be possible. That our love blows back and forth between one another and, and becomes this conduit of your power, these many reflections of your love. We are wanting to watch you do that miracle. We even want to be part of it. We want our lives caught up in that miracle. And so we pray to you now today that you would help us to remember you are for us in that work. We aren't alone. And to trust you. To trust you by praying to you. If I were in your position, I would not listen to prayers from me anymore. Because I so often neglect you, forget you, and then even when I do think to talk to you, just ramble on about my own needs. I would not be so patient with me as you have been. But here we are again today, Father, asking for your patience. Claiming the promise that you are greater than our hearts. That your love is steadfast. And your mercies are always new. We appeal to you for those mercies again right now in Jesus' name. Amen.